Thank you, Joseph. Good morning again to everybody. Great to see everybody. And this is spring forward day, so spring's almost here, right? I keep saying that, I know, but uh, colder weather coming, but it's getting closer and closer. So it's good to see everybody. Really great to see everybody. Be together. Uh, we do want to remember all of those in the prayer list. And again, please do remember Carissa Sears and her family at the uh, death of her nephew. I believe he was only in his 20s. He was killed in a car accident late this past week. Please keep that family in your prayers. Devastating news for sure. I want us to think about something that, and, and really think carefully about it. Uh, Mark did not know what I was going to be talking about this morning necessarily, and, uh, but he, he brought some things in that I thought, well, that really goes along with what I was saying. Yeah, that happens over and over and over again. I'll have a teacher in a Bible class tell me, that's what we were talking about today. Now, I didn't know what they were studying in their class. They didn't know what I was going to be preaching on today. Uh, it's interesting. I was teaching on, in our series on Wednesday nights, this past Wednesday night, I began a new lesson, and uh, that was on, it, the series is on heart troubles, so we've talked about fear and we've talked about worry and a, a number of different particular indications that we have some heart problems or problems with our heart. And so this past Wednesday night, I began a new lesson in that series on laziness. And Robert talked to me afterward and he said, you know, I just wrote an article about laziness. Now, he didn't know I was going to start that lesson. I didn't know he had written that article, but you see how they dovetailed together. And so, you know, God's providence is, is, is really something to uh, behold. And, and I think a lot of times his providence is working behind the scenes so that things turn out in ways that we're not expecting. Well, how does God speak to us? You know, realizing it or not, there are a whole lot of people out there, and I'm afraid there are even some within the Lord's church, who they replace what God says with what they think. They replace God's commandments that we read in the scriptures with what they think or what they want. And that's unfortunate because that does, just does not work when it comes to being faithful to God, following him faithfully. God speaks to us through scripture. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, be faithful, full of faith. And the indication there is you're, you're talking about living your faith in faithful, in a faithful way. That means true to God's word. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Well, this book is the greatest book that's ever been written. It is always, every year in this country, the best-selling book. Now, you don't see it in the New York Times best-selling list and when it's talking about novels and all kinds of other kinds of books because it's the best-selling book every, every year. And so I think they may put it in a separate category, but if they looked at all of the books published every year and all of the, the number of volumes that were sold, God's word would be number one every single year, probably by blowout proportions. How much do we read it? How much do we really take the time to dig into it and understand it? Almost everybody, almost every household has at least a Bible in the household. But how many times is it relegated to a bookshelf someplace or a shelf in a closet? Or some people may 
display it, they may have a really ornate looking big Bible picturesque and everything. They might put it on a coffee table. But how many times do they actually open the Bible that they have and read from it, even a single verse of scripture? Well, we replace what God's word says with what we think, what we want. I remember a dear lady, and by this time she had become a very dedicated, faithful, hardworking Christian. But she told me one time about earlier in her life when she was living a more worldly life. She said, I took took my Bible one day and I I just opened it up. I was going to read something from it. And my eyes fell on one particular verse. It said, flee fornication. She said, I slammed that Bible together and put it down. That was not what she wanted to read. And so she just put it out of her mind. Now, how many times do we act that way in essence without maybe doing it physically? God speaks to us through his word. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, that means it is inspired of God. And that means literally it is God's very word and he gave us his word to profit us in doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness. It's for our benefit. It's the best guidebook, the best self-help manual that's ever been written. Nothing compares to it. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, the apostle Peter said also, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. We need to stay true to what God's word says when we're talking about spiritual matters. And virtually every area of our life should be affected by spiritual matters, God's teachings. He goes on and says, if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Now notice, again, let's focus on that first statement. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And then that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Our bottom line goal ought to be in our lives to glorify God, to glorify God. God speaks, he guides, he commands us through the scriptures. So when we read the Bible, we're reading God's instructions, God's word to us. We're reading what God is saying to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 37, The apostle Paul wrote, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. We're not reading when we read the scriptures something that some men wrote down they thought were good ideas. We're not reading something that came from their heads. We're reading God's very word. They were guided by God through the Holy Spirit, as Peter puts it, to write just what God wanted them to write, to make sure that they got it correct. And so Paul says in Romans 1 and verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, the gospel of salvation, that's the word of God. That's the basic core message of God's word. We can look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we can see the creation. And then in chapter 3, we see the first man and woman living in the garden which God prepared for them to live in. And them then falling into sin. And everything changes. And from that point forward, 
the entire Old Testament basically is pointing toward the coming of the Savior. Then you look at the first four books of the New Testament, the gospel accounts, the Savior has come, and then the book of Acts, the early history of the church. And then Paul in his letters, and then James and Peter and the Hebrews writer, and John the apostle, speaking to the church and to individual Christians, this is God's will for your life. This is how you live that Christian life before God. How do we learn? How do we learn? Where does faith come from? It's not magical. It's not mystical. It's not something we catch. It's something that develops within us as we study and learn, understand, believe, and then begin to put into practice properly and accurately in our lives. God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So as Jesus told Satan, when he began to tempt him during the time that Jesus was in the wilderness, during that 40 days of fasting, he waited until the end of that, those 40 days after he had fasted for all of that time. And then the devil shows up and he, he tempts him. You're the son of God? Okay, turn these stones into bread. And every single temptation he threw at him on that occasion, Jesus responded powerfully and authoritatively through scripture, through God's word, God speaking. So he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So when we read the Bible, God speaking to us through his word, that's God talking to us. Because again, he guided those writers to write what he wanted them to write for our well-being, for our guidance, for our salvation and eternal life. Now let's look at some examples of how people, and I'm sure you can think of more than I'm going to bring out, but I'll bring out several. Some examples of how people replace what God says with what they think, with what they want. So I want us to just first look at the principle. God's word says, but you know, I think that we can change it in places to make it more relevant and up to date. Well, is that true? God's word does not change. We are to live by it every day as God has written to us. So in Matthew chapter four, verse, one, verse four, but he answered and said, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God speaks to us through the words of the scriptures. So we're to live by those teachings. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, Jesus goes on and he says, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by any means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now a jot and a tittle in the Hebrew language are small marks, some of the smallest marks in the Hebrew alphabet. We might compare them to an apostrophe or a comma or a period in our English, in our English vocabulary, our English uh, uh, you know, words and language. A jot or two, Paul, Jesus says not one little, not even the smallest marking of God's word will not be fulfilled. It'll all come true. 
To change God's word makes it our word, not God's word any longer. Paul was emphasizing this to the Galatian congregations in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He said, I marvel, I'm amazed that you are so soon turning away from him who called you in the grace of Christ to another gospel, a different gospel. And then he went on and said, which is not another So in case you might think I'm really saying there could be a different gospel, he says it's not a different gospel. There is no other gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or twist or change the gospel of Christ. In fact, I want to read the next couple of verses in that text. I did not put them in the PowerPoint, but I want to bring them out to you. He goes on and and further emphasizes. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven, if that were possible, hyperbolic language kind of, supposition, not saying that would happen, that an angel from heaven would bring false teaching, but he says even if that were the case, that extreme imagination of what might happen, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone and so he brings it down to more reality. If anyone of, of this, in this world, any human being brings a different gospel to you, if he preaches anything other than the gospel to you which we have preached, let him be accursed. Paul's emphasizing there, when you change God's word, it is no longer God's word. But, but we say, but well, I think, you know, this are modern times. That was 2,000 years ago. And I I think when you change God's word, Paul says, it's no longer God's word. Now it's your word. When we look at almost the last two verses in the New Testament, Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, the apostle John wrote this. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, you add something else to God's word here, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. We're talking about punishment. We're talking about judgment from God. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, takes something out of it, changes in in that way or that fashion, God shall take his part, take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So John covers both ends of the spectrum. He says, somebody comes along and says, you know, I think we need to add some things because some things have changed since these were written, these words, these books, this part of it, the New Testament was written almost 2,000 years ago. I think we need to add some things to it. We know more about now. We know more than God. Or somebody comes along and says, you know, there are some things there that no longer apply. We just we need to take those out and we need to recognize that they didn't know as much as we know now. And, and so we need to bring, bring it up to date. John says, you add to it or you take from it, you're going to be under judgment from God. God is not going to look at that lightly. So to change God's word makes it to cease to be God's word. So we need to be careful. Well, what else? God's word says... There is one true church, but I think all churches are okay. All denominations are okay. Whatever, they, whatever their teaching, whatever their position is. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus told the apostles, I say to you that you are Peter. He's speaking to him, but all the apostles are there gathered, so they're all within earshot. He says, on this rock, 
Peter has just confessed Jesus, just confessed him in faith that Jesus is the Son of God. And so Jesus says, on this rock, on this confession of faith, this belief, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades or the powers of death, he knows he's going to die on the cross before long. He said, that's not going to stop it. It's not going to prevail against it. It's not going to keep me from establishing my church upon this earth. But Jesus identified the church as his church. How many churches are there out there who some man or some group of people, some organization has established? And they will identify themselves by all kinds of names that are not found in the scriptures. God says there is one true church. Wait, but I think all churches are okay. Well, Jesus did not come to establish denominationalism, which the very word means, denomination means division. You go into a bank, you say, uh, I want to cash this check for $100. The teller might ask you, in what denominations do you want that money? Well, and so we might say, give me 520s or give me 1010s or give me, I'd, I'd like a 50 and maybe 21s and then a 20 and a 10. See, we're talking about dividing the currency up into denominations. That's what denominationalism has done on the spiritual level. It has divided the church into all kinds of separate, different churches that teach different things, believe different things, practice different things, worship God in different ways. That's not what Jesus came to establish upon the earth. You read through the New Testament, those early days of the church, those early years of the church, there's no mention of denominationalism except when you come to texts such as 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, where Paul, in essence, in principle, is warning against denominationalism, against going off into false doctrine or falling away from the truth, finding teachers who will scratch your ears for you, make you feel good in what you want the scriptures to say. Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 22, the apostle Paul wrote this, and he, that is God, put all things under his feet, that is Christ's feet, and gave him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul there, in that, in that opening chapter of that letter, identifies the church as the body of Christ. And then when he comes in the fourth chapter to listing some basic doctrines of Christianity, the very first one that he lays out in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 4 is, there is one body. Now he's already identified what that body is back in chapter 1. It's the church, the body of Christ. He says there is one body. And someone might say, well, well but I, I don't think he really means it, just one church. Look at the context. One spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Does he not mean there's only one God? Does he not mean there's only one Lord? Does he not mean there's only one faith, one spirit, one Holy Spirit? We see in the context, we understand what that word one means. Well, God says to worship him, because he speaks to us in scripture, 
So that's God's word. So he says to worship him in specific ways. But you know, I think that I can worship God in any way that makes me feel good. Really? What does God say about that? John chapter 4, beginning with verse 23, John the apostle wrote, but Jesus is speaking here. And so he says, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers, now you get that, that understanding, that implication of that phrase, true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now by way of implication from the language there, we understand then that opens the door to our understanding that there ultimately will be some untrue worshipers because they will not worship God according to his will in spirit and truth. Well, Jesus goes on then and he says, for the father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, let's look at some examples. God's word gives us the example of meeting together in the first day of the week to partake of the Lord's Supper and teach and study God's word. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we find the apostle Paul in the city of Troas, and he stayed there seven days. And I think he stayed there seven days so he could be with the congregation as they worship on the first day of the week, and he could be with them in that period of worship to partake of the Lord's Supper. On the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, we understand that to mean to partake of the Lord's Supper, as we did just a few moments ago. Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So they came together to partake of the Lord's Supper on that particular day. What day? The first day of the week. How many weeks have a first day? Every single one? That's what it says. That's what we understand every first day of the week. Every week has a first day. Did not say on the first day of the first week of, the, of, 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 of a particular month or the first day of the first week of some, some uh, every six months or every two months or whatever it might be. Just said on the first day of the week. The Jews under Old Testament times, they understood that language when they found in the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. They knew that meant every Sabbath day. The language is the same. On the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. And Paul preached to them or taught them on that day as they were gathered together. They studied God's word in addition. God's word, God says, he instructs us through his word to worship him in giving on that same day. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order or orders or instructions to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing, storing up as, as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. We're instructed by God's word to worship him through giving, giving back to him specifically from the material blessings with which he has blessed us. So we need to not look for loopholes to try to excuse that away. God expects that worship from us. He blesses us materially. He expects us to give back to him in worship. And that's a demonstration of our worship. 
In Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 19, God also says in his word that he wants us to worship him in song. And how are we to do that in worshiping him in song? Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, where? In your heart to the Lord. In Colossians 3 and verse 16, by way of comparison, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Now, I'm to accomplish something that's very specific. In fact, several specific accomplishments in my worshiping God in singing. I'm to speak to all of those gathered around with me through the words, the messages of the songs that we're singing. I'm to teach the teachings that are communicated through those songs. I am to admonish one another, and they are to admonish and teach and speak to me through the messages conveyed in the words of those songs as we sing to one another. And we're to make that melody in our hearts. There's no mention there, there's no hinting at all of any mechanical instruments of music, instrumental music in other words there's no mentioning of a choir doing my singing for me and those were not the practices of the early church for hundreds of years they understood what the wording meant and so instrumental music was introduced into the supposed worship of God through singing that was a devising of mankind not found in God's word in the New Testament scriptures talking about how God wants us to worship him in spirit and truth, simply going by what God's word says. Well, but we might say, but I think, I, 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 you know, well, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 says, therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to him, the fruit of our lips. When you think about that, a very appropriate application as to what we just read in Ephesians 5 and verse 19 and Colossians 3 and verse 16. God says, well, but I think, well, go with what God says. I think you need to stay with what God says. In fact, I'm sure of that. Well, another one. God says through his word that I need to be baptized for the remission of my sins, for salvation, to come into Christ. God says that. You know, but I, I, I think I can be saved just if I have a good heart and, and I believe in God and I believe in Jesus and I ask Jesus into my heart. I, I, I think that's sufficient for salvation. I don't think I really have to be baptized. Really? On Pentecost, 10 days after Jesus ascended back to heaven, the church came into existence. There were thousands of Jewish men gathered there, for, it says, from all the nations, that is, the known nations around the world. And they were there for that very special and specific feast day of Judaism. But Peter and the rest of the apostles, they began teaching the gospel of Christ. They began teaching New Testament Christianity. Peter's words are highlighted in that second chapter of the book of Acts. 
And so he laid down what some would call today a scathing sermon about how those Jewish people had rejected the Son of God despite the many proofs that God had, 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 had blessed him to be able to perform, to demonstrate that he really was teaching God's word, that he really is the Son of God, that he really is the Savior. He said, you crucified him. You, you saw the word, uh, the wonders, you saw the miracles, the signs which he performed in your midst, and you still crucified him. You didn't believe in him. Well, Peter didn't pull any punches. So in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You're rejecting him. You're disbelieving in him. You're sending him to that cross. Did not and still does not change who he is. He is the Messiah that you were supposed to be looking for, prophesied numerous times in the Old Testament scriptures. But you see, they thought he wasn't the savior they were looking for. So they rejected him. But when Peter was really coming to, a, to an emphasis, you've crucified your savior. God has made him both Lord and Christ. In verse 37, many of them said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God says, I come to salvation, I come to forgiveness through baptism. Jesus himself sent Ananias, a Christian man, to teach Saul of Tarsus. And he came to him and said, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. God says through his word, and Jesus gave this Great commission as he was ready to ascend back to heaven in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. He told the apostles, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe shall be condemned. The apostle Peter wrote years later in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, he said the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not a washing up of the body from filth and everything, not the putting away of, a, of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism doth also now save us. Well, that's that obscure, old-fashioned, out-of-date King James Version. That's what it says also in the New King James Version. That's what it says also in the American Standard Version and in the English Standard Version and in the New International Version, in the Revised Standard Version, in the New Living Translation, and I just quit writing them down. I'm sure I could find it in numerous other translations or, or, or versions as well. It says exactly that. Baptism doth also now save us. That's what God says. But again... I think, I, I just don't think you really have to be baptized. Well, you think does not compare with what God says. When we look again in that text in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 4, 
Paul is laying out basic, Christi basic doctrines of Christianity. Again, what does he say? There's one body. We know what that means. We saw that already. And one spirit, one Holy Spirit, obviously we'd all agree with that, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One baptism. Well, God's word says, I come into Christ through baptism. We've already seen it says, I come to forgiveness through Christ in baptism. It already says, I come to salvation through Christ in baptism. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, it also says, I come into Christ through baptism. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Is there any salvation outside of Christ? Well, everyone said, Odin would, of course not. He's the Savior. In Galatians 3 and verse 27, Paul wrote, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's what God says. That's what God says. And God also says that baptism is, is immersion. But you know, again, I, I, think, I, I think we can make it easier. We, we could sprinkle some water over somebody's head or maybe pour some water over their head. Or maybe we could get some water and rub it on their forehead. That ought to be sufficient. It's water. It, we can call it baptism. It's not what the scripture says. In fact, the very word baptize in the original Greek, the word baptizo means immerse, plunge, dip, bury, submerge. And so we read further in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And in Colossians 2 and verse 12, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We understand what burial means. Was Jesus, once he died on that cross, was he literally buried in that tomb, covered up in that tomb in that ground? Yes. Did he arise from that tomb, risen, made a lot? Yes. And there's the imagery in baptism. We are buried in those waters of baptism with Christ. We die at that point to that old life of sin and the guilt that we have been carrying and the blood that he shed on the cross cleanses us of that guilt of our sin. And we come up out of that water alive, made alive, reborn, John 3, verses 3 through 5, to walk a new life, as the text tells us in Romans chapter 6, and as Paul pointed out in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. God says, and we need to pay attention to what God says, and not try to change it with what we think or what we want. God says I must be obedient to the teachings that he had his writers write down for me in his word, the Bible. But you know, I don't think we, we, we have to follow all of those teachings. If I just have a good heart, if I just have a good heart, if I love God, I, I think I'll be okay. I've actually had somebody tell me that. If you have a good heart, you will live by God's teachings. 
and then you will genuinely have a good heart. God's word says that true love for him means I will obey his teachings. 1 John 2 and verse 5, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is, is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. And in 1 John 5 and verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. That's what God's word says. That's what God says. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Jesus gave us the example of the necessity of obedience to God's teachings. Though he was, was a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. And James chapter 1 and verse 21 what does James say? Therefore lay aside all filthiness and all overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. God's word guides us to salvation. Only he who does, that is obeys the will of God, his word will be in heaven. The scriptures tell us. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So not everyone who says, oh, I believe in the Lord. I love the Lord. Lord, Lord, I'm your follower. He said, not all those are going to be in heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. That means obey his teachings. Many will say to me, Jesus says in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Sounds impressive, doesn't it? But they weren't doing according to the will of the Father because Jesus goes on and says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You were never with me. Even though you called me Lord, you were never with me. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, why could he say that? Because they were doing some things they thought were okay, good, by their understanding and by their desire, but they were not following God's word. And so they were not being faithful to God. They were not doing the will of the Father in heaven. So here's the question for each one of us. Are you living by what God says? or by what you think, or what you want. It's a clear distinction between the two. In Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19 again, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the, wor book, uh, from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. You cannot rewrite God's word in your mind to conform to what you want it to be, or what will be okay, what you think, and still be right with God. If God said it, that settles it. If God said it, that settles it. Won't you come to him today, his way, 
repenting of your sins, confessing your faith in his son as your Lord and Savior, surrendering to him in baptism for the remission of your sins, to come into Christ, to come to salvation through Jesus. Won't you come to God his way? And if you have strayed away from that way after having come to him, won't you come back? Seeking God's forgiveness through prayer in the name of Christ, we'll love to pray with you and for you. We want to help you. We want to help you see more fully what God's word says. And that's all that matters. Won't you come right now as we stand together and sing?